The swing seat on the gravel out the west side of the house moves in the hot winds, empty but for a weather-battered cushion and a plastic glass on its side underneath. The bamboo chimes in the grapevine overhead are mute. The vine leaves fold against the beating sun. The thin shade is a meagre protection against the hard light. Later, this area will soften in the red sunset. The birds come out from their sheltering nooks and crannies. The wind will drop and there'll be relief as the night slowly rolls in. First thing, before the sun took control of the day, I used the hose to fill bowls and basins for the birds. Two small female mistletoe birds sat, unexpected visitors, on a wigwam of sticks supporting the beams. They came in close to the sprinkling of water drops, the red patches on the undersides of their tails flickering as they flit and dart in the green oasis of the garden. A cool change is due, but no rain. My son and a friend sit on the back porch, watching billowing smoke from a grass fire 11 kilometers to the north. They don't say much as they wait for the cool. It's a landscape they know, the summer landscape of fire and snakes. This Antipodean hot season infuses into the blood the heat and the light, the fear of dry and burning, a love-hate relationship. Swing seat, Polly Musgrove, Teasdale, New Year's Eve, 2015. In the first of the Hot Summerland series, we were left in a state of anticipation as El Nino took hold across the continent. And in December last year, as the intense summer got into full swing, most of the country did dry out. All that is, except for a thin wall of green to the east of the Great Divide, along the New South Wales coast. Drought held tight in western Queensland. Perth swooned through a series of record-breaking heatwaves. And then the southeast and southwest caught fire with powerful implications for human life, for livestock, native animals, plants and our landscape. How did the men and women of our fire services feel as the threat grew? Oh, look, gutted in a sense. You know, if you've li- I've been through lots of major fires, the worst of which is probably Black Saturday, and unfortunately... And, and as fire agencies, our, our job is to protect life and property, and, and it's, it is that simple. There is absolutely a degree of anxiety as we move in towards the summer. We do not want to... We we take it quite seriously. We do not want to lose one more life in this country. And the problem is the window to do this burning is getting smaller. It's wet in winter and too cold to burn and then it's just right, the Goldilocks period, and then two or three weeks later sometimes you're in a fire season and you can't do any prescribed burning safely, so... You know, in a good year you might get a couple of months where you can do a lot of burns. In a bad year you might get two weeks and that's it. Lee Pilkington is a New South Wales fiery and deputy group captain of the Gosford district, which has 19 brigades. 
There are 800 volunteers to hand and about 50 trucks. The National Artery of the Pacific Highway goes right through the district and on fire-prone summers it's often blocked with smoke dramatically shrouding its lanes and holiday traffic and freight alike at a standstill. Because of the coastal rain, this year Lee's concerns didn't come to pass with not a single fire in the district. Instead, some of his volunteers headed to Tasmania to help out. In December, we drove to nearby Mangrove Creek Dam to take a look at the country. There's two kind of landscapes you'll see here when, when you look around in terms of fire. One is where we do hazard reductions, which is moderate intensity. We keep it nice and low so that the plants thrive on that, because a lot of our Australian plants need smoke and they need heat or abrasion and those sort of things to, to seed. For me, personally, there's nothing better than seeing a low-intensity fire go through some acacias or things like that, um, bottle brushes, where the flower flares and you can see the seed pods starting to open. A small stand of Xanthria australis, the grass trees, you know, and you see a, a big flash of light as the outside, and this is their strategy to survive, you know, there's a big flare of fire as the stalks burn and then they disappear very quickly. And the insects retreat inside, then they come back out. So afterwards you see insects everywhere, spiders running around and cockroaches and all sorts of stuff. So for me, that side of things is really exciting. And then the other landscape you see is after a big, really intense fire goes through and it's like a moonscape. So the plants haven't had a chance to adapt. They'll come back in time. You know, their lignotubers will start throwing out green stuff from the trunks and from the branches, which you know, we see in all the footage but it's a lot harder for it to recover from that. So it's, it's quite a diverse way to see it operate. How quickly does the land dry out after a hot spring? It doesn't take long. You get the sun coming out and then a breeze like we're feeling today, which is probably not strong, 15, 20 kilometres an hour. But with the nice warm sun and the wind coming from the west, this will dry out the ground very quickly. So rain, no doubt, helps, but we can't get complacent about it. It, it does dry out very quickly and the fires come. So where were we weather-wise in December? El Nino was still in full swing, one of the three strongest we've ever experienced, a huge finger of oceanic heat pointing right at the eastern states. Well, the El Nino certainly progressed quite a long way from where we were before, and in fact we're probably at about the peak now, so that is in, uh, in early to mid-December. So it's right up there, comparable to the two strongest events that we've seen since 1950. And also the expanse of this blob of hot water is larger than usual, isn't it? Oh, certainly. And that also goes down below the surface as well. And we've been seeing temperatures up to 7 degrees warmer than normal below the surface. In actual fact, touching on 8 at times. So Goodness. very warm water below the surface. But... Andrew Watkins manages the Climate Prediction Services section of the Bureau of Meteorology and we caught up several times over the past few months to mull over the progress of this unusually intense weather phenomenon. Look, seven degrees below the surface in the Pacific Ocean, I find amazing. I almost can't, as a climatologist who's used to dealing in fairly small numbers, that, that is something I can physically dip my hand in and feel. And so I find that amazing, but I do know it's happened before and I do know that it's something that's possible to happen as part of this sort of cycle but look I mean I, I do feel terrified at times uh, for instance before the, the Black Saturday fires I think the Weather Bureau and Emergency Services you know, had a, could see what was coming up in terms of the weather and hence you had a bit of a sense of 
you know, foreboding to do with the events. The foreboding returned this summer as the centre of the continent was brewing up a bubble of heat, with October and November seeing average temperatures in Victoria five to eight degrees above normal. The dry soils and the, the lack of cloud inland has really baked the interior and then we get these fast-moving events that squirt the heat out from central Australia and burst it out over Adelaide and Melbourne, Hobart and, and Sydney and Canberra. And so we do get these short, sharp heat waves, possibly seeing one even coming in the, in the next few days over the next weekend. It'll get quite hot. Andrew was right. That weekend turned out to be one of fire for Victoria. After the heatwave, the 19th of December saw major fires start at Scottsburn, Barnawatha and Wye River. Steve Warrington was kept busy. He's the Deputy Chief Officer of the Victorian Country Fire Authority and has seen 30 years of service. He knows the signs of trouble. A series of dry lightning storms across the southern states. What would normally happen in the best times is that rain will accompany the, the lightning and the thunder. That would extinguish the fire, everything's good. In this case, the lightning came through, there was no rain with it, and it started a number of fires right across the state. And almost the day after our previous interview, the unfortunate thing, there's been some fire fatalities in the country. In that, we lost 142 homes already, 58 sheds, literally thousands of stock, which people tend to forget. but. As I say, uh, during that period of time, we've had fires right across particularly Tasmania, South Australia, West Australia, Victoria. It's easy to say, but when you actually think about the impact of losing your home, the things that are important to you within your home, that's a significant impact on the farming community, uh, family pets have been destroyed. It's actually really catastrophic for each individual, but we tend to skip over it by just saying, look, statistically, Victoria lost 142 homes. You'd think that when a forest burns, it just burns. But fire can seem like a living force with the wind as its breath. It responds to the angle on the slope of the hill, to the quality of the ever-changing ground cover, to the direction in which the sun hits the slope and causes the plants to grow. And old-growth forests and regrowth forests burn very differently, as the Victorian Black Saturday fires of 2009 demonstrated. OK, so if you burn an old forest, you're burning very large trees. The forest invariably has a, a dense, wet, understory and mid-storey cover. You've got rainforest that comes up after about 50 years. You've got very large pieces of fallen timber which are covered in lichens and moss. Those logs store almost all the water inside the log. And in many respects, they act as small micro-fire breaks. So this is the old forest? This is very old forest. And our work has shown, through careful measurements directly after the 2009 fires, that very old forest does not burn at the same severity as very young forest. Ecologist David Lindenmeyer is the Professor of the Fenner School of Environment and Society at the Australian National University, and he has an expertise in forestry fire management. What happens is that after the forest is logged, so we're talking about what's called a clear fell operation, the remaining biomass, which is about 60% of the forest, is left on the forest floor to dry, and then the forest is burnt in a regeneration fire to promote the next 
cohort of trees. By people. By people, that's right. So about 30% of that biomass is immediately volatilised and sent as emissions to the atmosphere. But the remaining 30% sits on the forest floor and undergoes accelerated decomposition. But it adds to the fuel load of the forest. At the same time, the dense, young, regenerating forest that's created by uh, reseeding the forest by foresters creates an enormous amount of additional fuel because it's a fight to the top amongst these trees. So there's enormous competition and the, the losing trees die, they drop their branches, they fall to the forest floor and you have this enormous build-up of additional fuel. So you have that build-up of fuel added up with the residual slash or debris that's left after logging and we see a significantly increased risk of fire for about 40 years after logging. So that means that anything that we cut down now has this fire burden uh, basically going out to 2060, 2070. Back on the edge of Mangrove Creek Dam near Gosford, I ask Lee Pilkington what the main issues are in country like this. Dense bush, steep hills and many ridges. Well, look, I mean, all bush burns differently. So if the fire's going up the north side of a slope, it burns differently to the west side. So you've really got to take it on a, a case by case. But tell, tell me what the difference is. Well, on the north side of a slope, you get a lot more sun. So that side of the bush is a lot drier. Generally, the fire is a bit more intense on the northern side. On the southern side, you get shade through the day. So it's a little bit cooler and it's a little bit safer on the southern side. But, you know, on a, on a 43 degree day with strong wind behind, it doesn't really matter where you are or, or what's burning. You, you're falling right back and you're trying to attack a fire from, from a distance. You would not want to be dragging your hose up here. No, well, you know what, in, we don't do a lot of hose work. It's at the end of the fire when we're making the edge safe, but when we're actually fighting a fire, it's the old adage, fight fire with fire. So you'll never put a bushfire out with hoses. You burn back, you take the fuel away. Uh, and then you use the water to make the edge safe so that when a wind picks up the next day, it doesn't blow embers over the track and things like that. Do you know, I didn't know that. That's embarrassing. That's all right. <laughs> a lot of our new members don't realise that until we tell them either. <laughs> you think about how far away we are from water, the trucks only carry 3,500 litres, so you've, you've got to do a lot of dry firefighting in Australia, which is it's counterintuitive. Nothing stranger on a 45-degree day than the lighting fire. In the Bega Valley, in southern New South Wales, 79-year-old David Barton fought the first fire for the season, back in October 2015. It is a classic bushfire day. Humidity is plummeting and the temperature rises quickly. A wind from the northwest is strengthening. A dozen kilometres away, a pile of logs and brush a farmer has been burning and thought was well extinguished begins to feel the blast of the wind funnelling up the dry creek bed. A smouldering patch of timber glows and sparks blast out from it. Very quickly, his extinguished fire becomes a running grass and bushfire, rampaging up the rise at an alarming rate. We answer the call and take our instructions on the radio as we head to the scene. The running fire is too fast for us. We drive along the flank its head approaching a track with a small cutting. We plan to defend this track and arrest the main run of the fire. 
At this point, our training becomes critical. Our safety is paramount and we must communicate and look out for each other and the fire. Our position relevant to one another and our truck. This is strenuous work and I am a proud great-grandfather, older than most of our team. The younger men look out for me as I feed them hoses and man the pumps, controlling the flow of water. In Victoria and the southeast Australia, we get the hot northerly winds that come out of central Australia. So for the majority of the day, and in fact some days, you can get just straight winds that come quite strong from the north. What then happens, usually about somewhere between 5, 7 o'clock in the evening, we will get a southwesterly wind change that will come through. So a fire that had been burning in one direction, and if you sort of think of a finger pointing down towards the bottom of the map of Australia, all of a sudden, if you like, it, it turns to the right, and that finger becomes one big long front. That then becomes the, the killer that destroys homes, destroys shed, destroys stock, and in some cases takes people's lives and everybody's in shock that, oh my goodness, we didn't realise that that was going to happen. That sort of thing is so frustrating to us. We, we know it, we know it happens, it happens on every fire, there'll be a change come through at some stage and it is the change that gets people off guard. A fire is a terrifying but also a fascinating thing. If you were to imagine the front of a bushfire, hear the roaring heat, gag on the smoke, you might imagine it stretching to infinity, a world of flames and charcoal. But this isn't actually the case. Fire can go through sometimes once or twice or three times. If it comes through on the ground, then it'll come through in the canopy of the trees. So there can be danger after the front's gone through, but it's actually a fairly safe place to be. So we can take a few steps and we're in that burnt section. It's black, it's dirty, it's generally quiet because all the birds have left. And it is quite mysterious and beautiful in a way, but it, it's safe and for us that's a really important thing. This whole question about when to go and when to stay, well, any fiery will tell you, get out as soon as you get the evacuation warning. But I do wonder, if you have left it too late, why is the house still the best place to be? There's an important trick to this, and Steve Warrington explains it to me. Before a fire front comes through, a fire is driven by strong winds. So even if you've cleaned gutters and around patios and doors and windows, etc., you will get uh, a number of embers coming up against your house, you know, upwards of some hours before a fire actually comes through. A fire will come through uh, relatively quickly, depending on the environment, the amount of fuel load, the temperature, the wind speed, etc. But we can guarantee that it will move quicker than most people will think. The fire will come through and impact directly on a home or an asset, and again, it's variable, but can be upwards of 15 minutes, half an hour um, that you'll get, and it will just keep going. Once the fire's gone through, then the fire intensity around your actual property will reduce. Now, of course, what's happened as the fire went through, all those little twigs that gathered up around your house an hour before the fire came are now on fire. We call that ember attack. They're the things that have now lodged in your gutters, lodged around doors and patios that will commence to burn your house down. So your house now is effectively just a normal house fire. You, you, you've got two options. You stay in the house, which is probably not the best option, or you get out at that stage. And if you've got access to hoses and buckets, you can actually extinguish uh, some of these embers that are occurring around your house and save your house. Can I preface all of this that our advice is, for goodness sake, don't be there in the first place.
There is little time for fear, but today smoke is a very real issue. The wind is so strong it blasts the smoke and radiant heat straight at us at pretty much ground level. We keep at it and manage to halt the fire along the edge of the track. All burning stumps and logs must be extinguished before a fresh southerly wind begins. It's not just the fire itself which is devastating for wildlife. After the fire, the landscape is like a barbecue with fresh meat on the side for foxes, dogs and cats. But when biodiversity-rich Jervis Bay burned in 2003, there was an interesting discovery. Some birds and mammals actually thrived. And there was a lot of concern about endangered species like this wonderful animal called the eastern bristlebird. And it was going to take the best part of a decade to recover and many threatened animals and plants might be on the way out because it was thought that they were very sensitive to fire. And as it turned out, none of that came to pass. What happened was that the eastern bristlebird mostly stayed on the sites that had been burnt. And it dawned on us that the most likely explanation for this was that without foxes, the foxes were killed by the fire and then the poison baiting started directly after and it killed them pretty quickly. The, the eastern bristlebird was no longer under threat from fox predation directly after fire. Victoria wasn't the only one to burn. Tasmania sustained grade three burns across the western half of the state and its vegetation was never designed to cope with fire. It will not recover. Andrew Watkins from the Weather Bureau says the start of it all was the state's driest spring on record. Western Tasmania sits out there in the, in the brunt of the westerlies that whistle around the, the earth in the, that sort of 40 degree latitude band and they smash into Western Tasmania and they're usually carrying lots of moisture and you get good rainfall. But uh, no, not this year. It was incredibly dry. The westerlies were further south and so the rainfall just didn't happen. And again, that might have been related to some of these dry thunderstorms, which is certainly something they don't really uh, normally get in those parts of the world. David Bowman is the Professor of Environmental Change at the University of Tasmania, and he's a passionate walker who knows this country backwards. I always like to say that Tasmania's little boat, which is chugging its way through the Southern Ocean, it's like you're moving through the Southern Ocean. In the morning, it can be perfectly sunny, and then as you're moving through the atmosphere, by the afternoon it can be freezing cold and it can be raining and that's why people die because they get fooled by it. They don't realise how rapidly changeable it is. Well this spring what happened was that the fronts would come, the temperature would plummet, but the rain was just this pathetic drizzle. So you could tell that the rivers weren't working right. And that's strange because, you know, normally we would have in the spring, because the melt from the snow, the rivers would be roaring but our rivers were drying up. But the real kicker, the climate change we're now seeing is seeing a very rapid increase in the number of dry lightning storms and ignitions from uh, these dry lightning storms. To have a storm come through and to light in the wilderness, to light 70 fires across the landscape, but what an amazing thing nature has decided to do is to throw into this stressed environment literally lightning bolts that set the ground 
and literally set the ground on fire. The organic soils burn, which mean that they're actually somewhat rainproof. Once these fires get into uh, logs and into the ground, you can have rain, light rain, and the fires will persist and then pop up again. A lot of these fires don't reveal themselves. After the storm, they might just be sitting there. Then five days later, my God, there's a fire there. We didn't even know it was there. And that's the legacy of the lightning strike that got into the ground and then it's beginning to flare up. The thing is, what we're talking about here is peat. And peat is traditionally something that the Europeans used for fires. So that's really what kind of organic soil we're talking about here, isn't it? I've got some actually on my desk of one of the old tin miners down in southwest Tasmania, you know, burnt peat for cooking. Uh, Because basically, you know, peat, once it's dried, is a briquette or it's, it's brown coal. You know, we've got this landscape mantled with peat on ridges, on slopes, on valleys, everywhere. That's what Western what Tasmania it is. is. It's this big, gooey, soggy place. Now in the summer, you're walking around on peat that's like concrete in some cases. It's so dry. As the urgency diminishes, the aching legs, backs and the sweat takes its toll. One of the young fellows is exhausted. I feel the same. We all drink copious quantities of water. Both the men and the fires differ. The men are of all ages and backgrounds, and we begin to recognise different kinds of fire. From its smoke colour, its height and direction, we learn how to estimate the effects of wind changes and ember attacks, and we take pride in our work. We learn to pace ourselves. We are volunteers and enjoy the respect of our community. The youngsters relish it and gain confidence. They begin to mature and appreciate knowing their community needs them and that we, their peers and colleagues, appreciate them. They are fast becoming responsible men. The first fire of the season, David Barton, Candelow, November 20. 15. On our next program in Hot Summer Land, we head to the dry inland and to water. We're visiting the junction of the Murray-Darling River to see how Australia's food bowl and watering system works during dry and wet, from the top end to the river mouth. I'm Gretchen Miller. Join me then. <laughs>